Welcome back to Potter's Pockets, episode 01010, our 10th episode. And we are back today with Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Chance to talk about chapter six, Gilderoy Lockhart, seven, Mudbloods and Murmurs, eight, the Death Day Party. And it is truly a pleasure to have both of you on at the same time now. Hooray, oh, man. <laughs> So what the listeners aren't getting right now, but maybe what they can hear in our voices uh, is that we've, we just, we all are like Ron with his broken wand right now using this technology together. And we recently just had to do some serious investigative work to figure out how to get all three of us onto this podcast. But you know what? We did it. Hooray. Yeah. And so no slugs. slugs. And no slugs. Very, yeah. yeah. No, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And so, y'all, just to sort of dive into this episode, we get on, we we get some insight into Gilderoy Lockhart's uh, teaching style. We also, <laughs> if, if so it can to be, speak. Okay. and, uh, and um, we also uh, sort of start to discover a, a creeping dark underbelly to not only Hogwarts and its history, but also to the wizarding community too. We find some words of denigration, both squib and mudblood and and some differing perceptions on um uh, well hierarchy within the wizarding community uh, it seems as if some wizards believe that uh wizards from pure blood uh rather than mudblood which none should say because it's a terrible word um are better suited for magic are more trustworthy and we learn from professor benz mr west chance's favorite professor <laughs> that um that there are that Salazar Slytherin, the, the, the head of the Slytherin house, one of the first founders of Hogwarts, uh, believed that Hogwarts should be a little bit... And then, well, lo and behold, we have an attack at Hogwarts. And so, y'all, what are we thinking about this second book? And this, our, I believe, third podcast on it now. What is it that y'all wanted to focus on today? I think we can start with Lockhart again um, and his uh, his relationship to the the mysterious goings on so far. We see him sort of um, following Harry around uh, or going places that Harry might tend to go, um, much the same way that uh, Colin and uh, well, Colin and Ginny, I guess, right? So they yes. sort of have these this this unusual. Um, little accompaniment to all of Harry's movements this time around. Uh, so it's not like immediately clear that that's related to the, the dark underbelly, but it seems like it is uh, a little bit similar at least. Um, and and his if Gilderoy Lockhart has something dark about him, it seems to be uh, his very effort to be, um, you know, agreeable to everybody, right? To be uh, a delightful, uh, you know, chummy teacher um his his attempt to be good is what makes him bad or something like that <laughs> if that makes sense well definitely his uh, his attempt to be famous or to be a star or to stand out seems mm -hmm. to be something that doesn't make him work well within a team because if we look at him as a teacher who has a specific subject to teach then the best thing he can do is teach that subject but what we see about him is he attempts to teach or, 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 or to outstrip Professor Sprout when it comes to herbology, not going to happen. He then steps on Hagrid's uh, toes a bit, trying to give him recommendations on how to, I think, engorge his pumpkins. 
that's not going to help very much. And then he even suggested he could make a potion in the presence of Severus Snape, who we know from the sixth book is a brilliant potions master. And so it, it, what's sort of interesting about him is that he, what he attempts to do is to seem as if he's a master of all. And yet what we see from his first lesson is that he seems to be a master of none. He can't even deal with Cornish pixies. Nor is he capable of teaching the students how to deal with the Cornish pixies, potentially, and perhaps I'll suggest this to you as teachers, because he doesn't know what he's doing. And so he doesn't know how to teach them how to do what it is they should be doing. Um, so what did y'all think of that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's funny every time, like, the narrator or another another character sort of dismisses his interjections well if, well if i had been there i would have known exactly the counter curse for that um and uh they give him like the side eye or they just start ignoring him eventually his um i think it's in like chapter eight maybe it's in chapter nine but eventually his um his assessments i think it's chapter nine um uh, get reduced to like a parenthetical note um <laughs> like what he said in the in conference with all these teachers Oh, and like, and like it, it becomes just a, a running joke, which maybe is something that he is as well, like a, a, a running joke to them. But I, I do think um, like there's something about his, uh, I'm not going to have the right word for it, but the way that he shows off when he clearly doesn't have like a depth of knowledge that would deserve or warrant warrant showing off i feel like when people really know things they either don't feel the need to show off or they don't um mm. like the the it's the it's like the the parading of his knowledge is a clue that he doesn't have it but also i think mm. um it's really sophomoric uh and it reminds me a lot of the way um harry pretends like the younger kids are somehow beneath him, right? Like, oh, I know this. Like, I know this. I don't need you around to have, like, awe and wonder at these things. Like, um, because, and at least that's what I see as a teacher with, with sophomores is the boastful, yes. um, I would have known exactly what to do in that situation, um, you know. So that's that's excellent. So you're sort of you're you're really bringing together a couple of threads that I I, I was really hoping we would get to discuss. So on the one hand, Harry is now a sophomore and has that sort of inflation we've been talking about of now that they are above just one more person, they are now master of all people and all domains of knowledge. Suggesting and so how does that manifest for Harry in this book through the figure of Colin, the first year. Um, 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 Gryffindor who follows him around and finds everything that he does interesting and and Harry doesn't have any time for him and so that that's just very interesting that you would also connect that to Lockhart who himself draws a parallel between himself and Harry them both being famous and Lockhart perhaps uh, unduly projecting the desire for fame onto Harry thinking that Harry wants to be famous and likes fame and the spotlight in the same way that Lockhart does, and Harry thinks that he doesn't. But on the other hand, he now has sort of a fan. He's got, a few, he's got a few fans, right? Yeah, and he doesn't seem to have much sympathy for Colin, even though, like you mentioned, just last year, everything was fascinating to him yeah. in, this, in this book. And since we just read the first book, he didn't have to wait a year for it. 
Uh, we remember Harry and ourselves meeting Quidditch, yeah. meeting the moving staircases. See, I mean, when Colin says, oh my gosh, I can actually develop the film so that the, the characters in it move? <laughs> That's, it's like, that is cool, but not to Harry. I, yeah. I think I, on, I, the other thing I would say about that is, so, okay, in addition to his kind of being annoyed by Colin, he's also, like, really embarrassed by Ginny. And he flushes quite a bit when when Hagrid says, "Well, I don't. I think she wouldn't mind an autograph photograph, you know." <laughs> and um, it could be because it could be because you know he's right next to her big brother Ron, but I don't think he's old enough to really understand that dynamic either. But he blushes. There's a lot of people who blush in these chapters, and there's a lot of people who who um, look blanched or pale. All the way down to the ghosts. Obviously, the ghosts can't blush. They don't have blood flow. But um, there's a lot of, I noticed a lot of that kind of facial description of blushing with embarrassment or being blanched with embarrassment or something like that. But um, I would also say that, like, to your earlier point, when you were introducing these chapters about, you know, what we discover about kind of the wizarding world and its hierarchies, um, is that it really is kind of like if you can have one one level above someone then you can dismiss that person below right and we saw that kind of at the beginning with what we learned about the house elves I think maybe just sort of like an undercurrent of at least the first half of this this book but maybe the entirety of this book is um like hierarchies um and dominion and um and precisely the temptation that we feel when we have a little bit of power perhaps to make use of it against those beneath us who maybe we climbed over or whose shoulders we stand on in order to have that power. So like you turn around and you um, oppress the person just beneath you, never the, like never considering the fact that you are not that distinguished from them. Like I think the, the, the revelation of all of these hierarchies within, um, within the wizarding world it is an and it's an opportunity to like to see kind of how do they have class classes and um, groups of people who with a little bit of power grow um, covetous of more. Um, I, I'm not sure if that makes but, any sense. But, but also, I think what what might be sort of an open question with exposing us to these hierarchies is what the appropriate value structure is, because on the one hand, we we see that though Malfoy is very rich and manages to make his way onto the Quidditch team because of his money, that is something that he's deeply embarrassed to hear actually articulated in his presence. The only reason you made this team, and this is from a highly competent individual, Granger, is because you bought these brooms, which makes him very, um, he's very self-conscious about that, as we know from the conversation he had uh, earlier before school with his father, where his father talked about how ashamed he should be because of a muggle-born defeating him. And so we have that sort of contrast between the um, non-pure-blooded Hermione, who is the most talented witch of the class, but also uh, um, Draco, who comes from perhaps the oldest wizarding family, but is not as competent as her and has to use wealth to move forward Mm -hmm. in, uh, in his life. And so we also get, like, say, Arthur Weasley, who's very poor, but has a very excellent and balanced family and very talented children, as opposed to, say, Lucius, who's very rich, 
but it's sort of unclear whether his son is going to amount to much without extraordinary help from his vaults. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I think I see in, tan, or in tandem with what you're saying, besides bringing up the question of hierarchy, is what should be the highest values? Like, who is actually in charge here? And, uh, or or what, what is it that we are to aspire towards? Do we want Dracos in this world? Or, or do we want Hermione's? Mm-hmm. Which sort of person? And, 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 and it seems sort of like that's the fundamental dis, uh, disagreement between Godric Gryffindor and, and uh, the original Salazar Slytherin, right? Slytherin right. left the school because he wanted them to be more selective, where Godric Gryffindor seemed to have had a vision of the future of Hermione showing up and said, no, we'll, <laughs> we'll keep the, the non, we'll keep the non purebloods in there. Whereas Salazar Sil- Slytherin seemed to have not cared for that very much and seemed to have sort of poisoned the well a little bit too, right? Right. He creates this chamber of secrets in which this horror exists that will someday take out the venomous rage of him on some poor, unsuspecting and innocent student who we, it, who it turns out we've met. Mm-hmm. So, unbeknownst to ourselves. Uh, Wes, what do you think about this? I'm sorry, dude, but I, well, I just had that idea and had to share it. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. The, I was looking at the mudblood thing, um, yes. thinking about that a little bit, and um, a couple of thoughts about it. So the, the first time that we hear it is when uh, Hermione uh, say, says about that uh, buying their way onto the team, right? And that's when yes. Malfoy uh, jumps to the insult. And, yes. um, and then the next time we hear it is at the end of the chapter, uh, the death day party, where um, in front of pretty much the whole school, Malfoy comes out and just uh, threatens all the mudbloods and mass um, as, as enemies of the air. Like he sort of interprets that for us, um, what that phrase might mean. Right. Uh, so I was surprised. I was a little bit surprised how just how bold Malfoy is in like embracing this uh, this role as the uh, the rabble rouser here. Um, but I also thought it was interesting how it connects with the other word that we are not supposed to say. Right. Which is Voldemort's name. Uh. Uh, so, so there's some kind of from the beginning, I guess there's this idea like there's certain things which are which are outside of of free speech. Right. For one reason or another. And, and I think your question is opposite there. Like, what is the way that we determine what kinds of things we can say and what kind of things we, we shouldn't or can't or choose not to? Uh, I guess that's a way of, of asking the same question I, you're asking. Yeah, I think, I think um, that's a great question. I think that's a great connection to the idea of Voldemort. Like, what are, uh, because it asks, like, wherever we draw our boundaries as what's good and what's not or what's acceptable, what's not, what's, what should we seek for what should we avoid you like when you draw that boundary like clearly the word mudblood or is out of bounds right mm-hmm. um yes. but as soon as it gets used right it stops like slight ever so slightly it gets increasingly in bounds right mm-hmm. so that that boundary is not um you know it is porous um, be, or it's maybe not porous, but it's flexible uh, because clearly by the end of two chapters later, he's he has the guts to say it in front of everybody else. Now, I mean, that sort of to me is sort of like, well, when that that's that that to me is like how things change and evolve, you know, like 150 years ago, women couldn't like show their ankles <laughs> um, or, um, you know, how how certain words 
we're not acceptable and then we're acceptable and then are no longer acceptable or, you know, that, that evolution, like once, right. if, once you sort of break this, that sound barrier of like, oh man, you said it out loud. Maybe you right. realize like, oh, it's just a word and we've ascribed it enormous amounts of power. Now I, I don't want to go down that, that road, but clearly words do have power in this that's, that's, book, right? Yeah, like, that's- that's true, but they only have power. And this is something I want to add in there. If they conjoin to the situation in an appropriate way, obviously words that in no way relate to a situation are written off. So words only gain power when they express something true about a situation, which is precisely why bad words are so bad because they accurately describe some aspect of a situation in a way that somebody is supposed to pass over in civil discourse. So as you were saying that these words can gain power and ascendancy over time. That's precisely because the situation in which the people speaking change over time. And so just as Hogwarts has been changing over time, it seems, now we see that on Slytherin, they have all males on the team. Every single chaser on Gryffindor is female. Mm -hmm. And we have people like Hermione acing the scores. People like Lucius Malfoy, arch conservatives, traditionalists, do not like this. Right. So I think the use of this word in this moment indicates a profound tension in the magical world. There is a change happening amongst the magical folk and how they relate to each other and how they relate to muggles and how they perceive muggles. And, I, and so I think that that word just becomes, it becomes sort of the linchpin in that situation. It, it kind of puts a pinpoint on what's happening and, and draws, like you were saying, a dividing line between these two now competing perspectives. It reminds me of um, something we talked about in our discussion of um, the Philosopher's Stone, right when um, Mr. Dursley is dropping Harry off at King's Cross for the first time. And he, he says something, and I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but he says something and the narrator tells us that it was like, it was like audibly nasty or cruel. Uh, And like, I think our just in our discussion, we pointed out how like when things are changing and you realize that you may not have the upper hand. Ah, yes. Does that does that create like a reaction that's not logical, not rooted in reason or like humanity, but is rooted in like this visceral kind of emotional reaction of anger uh and and like i i I guess i think i think think you're you're hitting something and i just want to connect that to what gilderoy lockhart does yeah it seems like what you're saying is when you realize that the situation has changed to a place that you do not wish it to be and you are powerless to change it the only thing perhaps you can do is be nasty is say something nasty or to just use your words rather than to affect change through your actions. Sort of in the same way that Gilderoy Lockhart is incapable of using his magic to accomplish anything he says he does. And so obviously he talks the most of any of the professors he had accomplished the least. And I, I'm, yeah. and I was just gonna say, and it's and aside from being nasty, like when you real, I'm, I think there's like a real weakness in like destructiveness, in like yes. ending things, in breaking things. There's a real, in like drawing that dividing line and like digging it in and sep- you know severing ties i'm i'm of course like i right now i'm um i i feel bad because i um i'm always i feel like i'm i'm so often just thinking of like 
uh, like our context as individuals in this country at this moment. But like, mm. like a year ago yesterday was the march in Charlottesville. And it's hard mm. to not, it's hard to not associate like this mudblood nonsense with their nonsense. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like, and how like when you feel most threatened and you know, like maybe in the recesses of your mind or you haven't explored it yet, that there isn't actually a threat you just aren't as powerful as you once were. the re- The reaction is this is ugly, and and it's 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 messed up. Like it's nasty, it's cruel, and it's it's divisive. Um, I like I have a, I don't know. I have a hard time not seeing that connection. I suppose. Well, and um, I think to your point, and I'm sorry, Wes. I know you're trying. You're, we're trying to get in. I'm. This is a one. I've already spoken longer than I was going to say, but it's like. It seems like the nasty effect, the the destructive effect you're mentioning there is one that nobody can control once it's out. Right. It's like it. the problem with sort of a devolving civility like that, as represented by the devolving discourse between the students and the raised level of emotion and therefore the difficult and then they're and then they're sort of tribalizing their becoming more and more rooted with their houses. And this is something we'll see later as, as the horror continues through. The students will spend less and less time with each other outside of houses and more and more time in their common room. That, um, that what, what happens is something that is destructive, not only for one party or another or one side or another, but for everybody right? Um, in a way that you just cannot control. Um, right. I think there's something funny going on, though, with um, what they do when when they have this conflict and Ron is spouting slugs out of his mouth, they head to Hagrid's hut. And uh, what Hagrid feeds them is the treacle fudge. And it, um, it cements their jaws together. So so it's like, there is something very interesting there. Like, what do you do when you're spouting slugs out of your mouth? You eat the treacle fudge, right? You go to Hagrid's hut. What would that mean? I guess in this context, I don't know exactly, but it's funny. It's funny. I mean, get off Facebook. I can can move on that. Yeah, no, I can actually move on that. I was thinking about this because let me let me run this by you and see if we can clean this up because maybe it's not quite there, but I think it's close. I think what Ron having to eat his own slugs there, what that Mm. symbolizes is sort of how you have to eat your own words and your negative feelings in a situation like that in order to maintain peace. Mm. That um, that you have to hold it in. That if he fights and everybody wanted to fight Draco there, how dare you, Alicia and Katie say, you know, that's, you know, it's utterly foul that he said that unacceptable. Everybody indicated that that's how we knew, right? It's everybody's reaction that lets us know that's a bad word. You do not say that sort of thing. Um, and, and so to your point about eating the fudge that then cements their, their mouths closed, it's, it seems to be that some, some engagements are not worth engaging with because they will lead to further conflict. And if your goal, like in the Odyssey, is peace, that sometimes you have to, you have to eat some slugs mm-hmm. uh, or keep your mouth closed. I, um, yeah. I know. I was just going to say, I, when, they, when they eat the fudge and it cements their mouth shot, shut, I thought that was just that, like, Hagrid was a bad cook. Um, <laughs> but well, that's like, probably true too. But he's but... also, but I mean, you know, to get into the symbolism, isn't he like the 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 parental figure for them who's also not going to get them in trouble a lot, like, but yes. sometimes going to encourage their mischief, maybe directly, maybe indirectly. So he's that parental figure who expo- like 
explores Diagon Alley with Harry at the beginning. So um, maybe mm. he's like the the older brother that Percy and Fred and George cannot be because one is too is too rigid with the rules, like takes five points from his own brother. And right. one of them, one of them, or two of them have their own drawer and their own <laughs> their own file cabinet in like the bad kid room, right? Like, like I just I what if Hagrid is like this happy medium yeah. Oddly, this large happy medium between, um, uh, between like obsession with rules and every little toe out of line and total disregard for rules, and so they go to him and he's he's a compass and he says, "Oh man, that's a terrible word." Like he confirms all of the youngsters' emotional reaction, but then you know, symbolically gets them to shut up about it. Though I guess if, yeah, yeah. if his jaw is cemented shut, it really shouldn't be because he needs to like throw up all the slugs. But um... well, yeah. I, I agree too, because he, he also checks Harry too, right? Mm-hmm. The very first thing he does is say, hey, I've got a bone to pick with you. I heard you were passing out signed autographs. I want one. And then Harry turns, starts to blush and get frustrated. And that's when Hagrid knows he got him, nailed him. He's like, I'm just kidding with you. But, but that's, I mean, I don't know if y'all saw it like I did, but within the context of what Sarah just put, it's like, that is sort of like a big brother checking you. I mean, I remember when at St. John's, I, I, I had the honor of being drafted my second year there in the first round of the draft by the Guardians. And then, uh, uh, and so, you know. They what are you to, talking about? What is the Guardians? Well, well so <laughs> at, at St. John's. Um, golden-hearted guardians the golden soul I, I know what a right. guardian is but i'm not sure what you're talking about is sure. this a sports at, thing? At, so yeah. at st john's yeah. there are four sports teams like there are four houses at hogwarts and okay. in your second year at st john's you get drafted and if you're drafted in the first round that means that you're the first choice of of that sports team and so after i was drafted for the first time i'm i was late to the very first soccer game soccer is the first sport that's played during the fall at St. John's, and the athletic director of the time, Leo Pickens, saw me. No way. Said, oh, well, uh, there we go, Schmied. Uh, so kind of getting drafted in the first round and now going all Manny Ramirez, huh? <laughs> and, you know, can't show up at the right time. And, you know, he was razzing me. He was, he was letting me know that from my actions, it looked as if it had gone to my head, what had, you know, that, that I had been picked early like that and i sort of see that as what an authority figure particularly male on male um in in this case does and you know the fact that hagrid would sort of make fun of harry in that case strikes me as a sort of keeping him in line uh, making sure that he's not becoming more like gilderoy lockhart um like that's not the sort of person you are harry um yeah. Right, like to that point, I mean, when he does blush, he, it happens a few other times in these chapters where you blush. Like, so, I mean, sometimes you blush from being embarrassed, right? Or like everybody's looking at you and you're on stage and you forgot the words or whatever, and that's embarrassing. But in, in so far as like um, stuff like that being used to kind of, I don't know, publicly shame in a way, but without the you know red letter A kind of connotation, shame. But like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really good tool for reminding people, especially I think young people, about where the line is. Um, like, and it's much softer than a howler. Just it's, rip. It's way more. It's way softer. I mean, and I say this having taught at an all boys school for eight years. 
I'll tell you what, like a little dose of public shame, like, oh, oh, you forgot your book today? Huh, interesting. How do you intend to explore the text with us today? Oh, you don't? Oh, okay. Well, maybe you can ask for the notes from a friend. Thanks for joining. Um, or thanks for playing. Like that, that kind of, that kind of like, and it embarrasses them a little bit, not a lot because they have a healthy ego and, and it, it works to, I mean, you, you can't do it a lot and you can't go extreme, but like it works to remind, like to check them into place, which at this moment in their sophomoric time, they need that. I think that's like, that's the kind of, um, I mean, you know, they don't need to know where the, the dining hall is anymore. They know where that is. There are new uh, things that they need to learn and, and like learn your place or learn what, what is expected of you and how not to disappoint people. Um, that's very interesting. I, I hadn't even thought of that. And I, I was wanting to ask about the death day party, but kind of what you just said there about learning your, your place and having new things to learn. And as we know from the new herbology lab, that's true. It's, it's sort of like what each year of school is, especially at Hogwarts is entering territory you think is known territory, but is actually unknown territory. And so um, it's like your map of the situation gets more sophisticated every year, right? Because, yeah. okay, now you know about Hagrid and a magical ceiling and you know all your classes and you know the professors a little bit, but how well do you really know any of this? Right. It, and it looks like starting to get some of the nuances of the wizarding community is sort of showing us that when you first learn something, you learn sort of the big swathes, the general picture, the, the first pass approximation, the psychologists would call it. But that as you become, as you start to delve in and really investigate the picture, the things become more nuanced, more mature, more sophisticated. And that um, perhaps that's something that the sophomore as wise, sophos, moros, fool, is just now coming to knowledge of. It's like they're getting an inkling of how things work and that there is a deeper level of knowledge or a deeper level to everything in their lives, but they're not yet articulate enough to, to really put it into words, to grasp it. Mm -hmm. They can sense it in some way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 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 The, way the, uh, the way that that works, I think, I think it's interesting that Hagrid is the one that uh, is able to put things in perspective for them because I think he experiences this on a, as you guys are describing, like another level of um, prejudice that he's had to experience being of, right. of mixed giant and human race, right. as we learn later, right? So he, he, he sort of can, can observe and see the, like, the components of what they're going through, and yet he can sort of step outside that or see it from a different mm. standpoint. So he's and like a natural see, exile. He has a he has a pride of place and external and internal perspective. Interesting. Mm. He he also or uh, uh, Filch also shows us this yes, too. Right. right. So there's, there's his um he he his turn to to blush brick red uh, when mm. Harry sees the uh, correspondence course that he's doing. Uh, quick spell right and it's got this like fancy font which really jumps off the page um, letters yeah yeah <laughs> it's fun of course and beginners magic and there's tips for how to hold your wand uh you know holding your wand some useful tips so it's like clearly putting it on a, a really humorous like uh pr perspective of it but and filch is not the most sympathetic character but at the same time <laughs> 
see it from this other angle and and then it starts to hit home maybe a bit later like how serious this is for him we see it also with the with the death day party right so it's like this thing that is so strange and bizarre um where where nick is trying to be part of the headless the hunt or whatever right so um it's something that again is like way outside of harry and his friends actual experience but it's the same thing right it's this uh this inability to enter into a a world that you thought belonged to you or that you thought you knew right so that's interesting so that makes me wonder which direct and this is a dawning thought but so if the magical world was that wonderful escape from harry from a terrible place into a good place perhaps what he's now getting to perceive is that that is only his experience of the magical world but not everybody's because for some people the magical world or or precisely what they desire is precisely that which seems to be denied to them just as filch wishes to be magical so does nearly headless nick wish to be headless nick (laughs) (laughs) um and I, i just i'm wondering because we learned that headless nick was he had his head chopped off by a blunt axe it hit something like five times right and it just it makes me wonder in conjunction with filch attempting to take this sort of like late night infomercial uh learn magic quickly and i mean we even get testimonials there right and again we have advertising mentioned here and and perception affecting reality my my charms my wife used to laugh at and now they're great is the sort of thing (laughs) on there and sort of sort of the idea we get is that um when you want something that has been denied to you so bad you might be willing to believe things that aren't true in order to acquire it this will fix your hair um you know and like you can grow this hair back it's it's not just the magical community that is subject to this um and so that i that's so I guess what I'm trying to get at is it, it seems as if you're, what you're suggesting is that Harry's perspective on not just how things work within the magical community is changing, but what the magical community is to those who are part of it and those who wish to be a part of it might be as well. Um, I don't know. It's, it's rough. It's rough at this point. But um, so, I mean, yeah. So uh, the death day party. <coughs> We have, and this is something we were sort of talking about before we got on air, was um, I, I was sort of mentioning to Wes, it looks like we have sort of a formula in these first two uh, books, at least at the beginning. You're sort of, you're not at Hogwarts, and then magical things start to happen. And then you have to get there, and there's, there's a getting there. And then once you're there, you meet your professors, and then you have a Halloween thing happen. And then something funny happens during Halloween. And then it's like, <laughs> Christmas. And so this time in Halloween, we don't have the wonderful feast. We do see it off in the, the, the corner, but we have a descent into the underworld, right? Is the 500 right. dead day, death day of um, nearly headless Nick. I hope he doesn't hear me say that. And um, we don't know whether to be happy or sad on this day, which is sort of funny because maybe that's how it is at a very good funeral too. Um, you know, and um, you are certainly happy to see all the people that loved someone. I'm also sad to see them go. Um, but so I was just sort of wondering what y'all wanted or what you saw in this death day. Why, why are we taken down to the ghosts and seeing the bloody Baron and Peeves, who's all colored, whereas everybody else is drawn? And uh, why is it that Harry, Ron, and Hermione are 
are torn down into this new thing that many mortals don't get to see, but is not enjoyable for mortals at all. And in fact, we see that sort of recurring myth of an underworld having food that you can't eat in it, but they don't want to eat the food in this underworld because it's all moldy and gross. Um, so what did y'all see down here in this eighth chapter of this second book? Well, um, we do meet Moaning Myrtle, ah. which seems important. Right? So she's another uh, character who is um, mocked for something uh, we don't fully know what it's about just yet, um, but Peeves uh, takes something pretty harmless that uh, Hermione says and uses it against her, right? So um, again, this, this, this chance to uh, pick on some minority or you know, outsider or whatever uh, is, is highlighted here, again, for like humorous effect, but it makes Hermione feel pretty bad. Um, and of course, we'll see more about that later. Uh, but I also thought it was interesting how um, the, the the death day party um, gives us a maybe for the first time I've been paying that close attention, but it gives us a, a time frame for the book, right? Because it's the 500th death day, and it dates his death in uh, 1492. Yeah. So that gives us a, a contemporaneousness, to, contemporaneity to the story. Um, we can sort of like calculate from there when things are supposed to take place. And so I think it's not really out of the realm of uh, like, it seems like the book is encouraging us to think about contemporary political or mm -hmm. social issues with respect to the kinds of things it brings up because it places it in our time, like very explicitly there um, in the nineties. So. Yeah. I, th I thought one of the reasons, I mean, so Alex, and, and Wes, I, you guys are more well-versed in this than I am, but, um, you know, like, they go to the depths of the castle. As I understand it, it's it's in the basement, I think. Um, one of the dungeons, I think. It's in one of the dungeons. So a couple things, like Wes already mentioned, they meet Moaning Myrtle, um, who, and, and that's like a, an author's way of, like, flashing you a, a quick clue like you get introduced to somebody who's going to be important, but in a way that doesn't make them important, makes them memorable, but not seemingly significant. Um, but so that's like a, a, a trick of, you know, a, a storytelling, I assume. But um, but I think also being in the dungeon and then he hears the voice. I think it maybe that's um, that's where he needs to hear the voice as opposed to like if they were at the feast, maybe he wouldn't have heard anything. Um, right. it would have been loud. They would have been warm. Um, they would have been full, maybe getting sleepy cause they were really full. And, um, like they may not have, ever, he may not have ever, um, like had a moment where he was like in a quiet enough space, um, to be able to hear that. I think that that's part of why they're there, but I would also assume that there's like some kind of illusion happening to when you like any any of the stories where somebody descends to the underworld, right? So I know it happens in the Odyssey, and it happens in the Inferno, and it happens in the Aeneid. That mm -hmm. like like you you go and there's something that the character needs to acquire there. Yes. Um, like usually some kind of knowledge, um, but also maybe like I don't know a thing, um, a, an object. Maybe maybe that's not the case, but 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 like a kind of knowledge, but not just a knowledge of of the world but more of like a knowledge of oneself so like who you're destined 
to become um, in the case of Aeneas or how to recognize hate and then therefore avoid sin for Dante or something like that. But um, I guess yeah, so I'm not, what is it for Harry? I'm not, I'm not, I guess I'm not quite sure what that would be for him aside from um, recognizing that Nick is having this party where clearly he's not the most important person at the party. Um, <laughs> you know, and like, I don't know, maybe is, is this supposed, is he supposed to learn compassion um, for the outsider, for the other? Um, I don't know if that's, if that's too, if that's too cliche or, um, but given what we've been talking about, all of these characters who, like Wes said, are like semi rejected um, or um, outsiders enough that they can see on the inside. I mean, they're also outsiders at this party, right? They're the only people who are alive. And, oh, yeah. and how, how better to cultivate some compassion than to actually have to walk in, like, to be what something, somebody else struggles with every day, right? So struggle with, like, <laughs> the food here sucks. I'm cold. I don't have anybody to talk to. Um, I mean. I, I think I see. It- I think I see. I think you're getting at it. I, so, so I guess one of the troubles of Harry and one of the great temptations of him in the second book is to identify with his fame, even though he hasn't really earned the right to be famous through his own sort of conscious actions. And so part of what maybe this scene is doing for him is helping him to identify with the losers as well, the ones who haven't done so well. So perhaps what part of this is, is helping him to attain is a, more, is a balanced perspective. In yeah. Fact, Directly because he was at the death day party, he is again very suspiciously found at the scene of a crime, which, which because of circumstances, makes perfect sense that he would want to do something mean to Mrs. Norris because of his recent negative interaction with Filch and potentially, and I think this is how Filch actually sees it, because of his, his sort of potentially Slytherin-esque looking down on Filch for being a squib. And so I think that's what Filch, and I mean, Filch really reacts very strongly to thinking his, his cat is dead and, you know, with good reason because she seems to be the only creature in the world that can stand him. And uh, as Wes said, not very sympathetic. But um, I'm, I'm wondering, because I'm, I'm having trouble with that too. I'm not entirely clear on what the treasure that's hard to attain is that is taken from the, uh, the underworld of sorts of well, the death day. I'm, yeah. I mean, I guess to follow up on what you were saying and what I was just what I was just saying is that like I think I think it's easy for Harry to think of himself as an outsider, right? Because he has like this this mark on his head and he has this um uh this you know tragic past. Uh and I think it makes him feel like he is outside looking in, especially like when he's at the burrow, right? Um, and he's, I'm an outsider, you know, but at Hogwarts, he's not an outsider. Um, he's the, he's the, he's the cool kid. He's the old, you know, the youngest person on the, on the Quidditch team. He's got, somebody already has a crush on him and he's only 12 and like, um, and he's got a, he's got followers. Um, he's got the teachers on his side with all but one exception, you know, like (laughs) he, he is, he is in, in a way that he may not quite understand or be comfortable and so any type of I, I don't know I, I I think that there's something to like him needing to understand how crappy it is to be outside <laughs> um and and like maybe 
being in the dungeon, the treasure is mere. It's merely. It's it's maybe it's maybe less a a, a thing, or I see. I see. Yes, it, it's maybe less like an object or even like an encounter that gives him the knowledge or the treasure that that he needs to get from the underworld, but that that's the only place he can be to ultimately be found at this sketchy scene of the crime, which eventually it will ostracize him for months from you, his. You're right. You're right. And I think so thinking of the Odyssey, the Aeneid and the Inferno, it, it seems like each of the protagonists who go down into those underworlds, what they have to do is they have to give up the world for a moment. They have to, they have mm -hmm. to exit outside from their lives in order to realize their purpose in life and their direction going forward. And so what, what Harry seems to get, like you're saying, from being an outsider here is the necessary perspective to, to oh, I had it, but I'm losing it, is the necessary perspective to understand the value of what he actually has. It is only by stepping outside yourself or your situation or that which protects you for a moment, like your kingdom, that enables you to actually see what it is that you love in your kingdom. Something I often said in college, I was in New Orleans and then Milwaukee, but not Atlanta where I grew up is, and I, I would often say this to try and be romantic, but uh, is you have to leave the place you're from in order to, to realize what you really loved about it. So, and man, man, yeah. do I understand that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you want to maybe tell everybody that what's just happened in your life? I mean, yeah. I guess I, I just moved back to Seattle. Um, but um, no, Which I is mean, like to you? Is that it's, an it's home. Place? That's home. Yeah. Um, I think. I mean, I knew that from the minute I left and like went to Notre Dame, where there are no mountains and there's no water and there. There's nobody wearing Birkenstocks and nobody listening to Nirvana. So, um, but, but even in leaving DC in the last couple months, I just like, I really enjoyed as much of DC and the people there as I possibly could. And it made the leaving really hard. Right. Yeah. But like, um, I was just going to say, you know, like, why does he decide to go to the death day party in the first place? Tim, when I, get, when I read that, like, th does that maybe give us a clue as to what he, yes. what he needs to get from there? I mean, cause like in, in, in these other mythical story, in these other myths about travels to the underworld, I mean, I, I think Odysseus has to go to the underworld or it's, yes. and then Aeneas is compelled because he doesn't do anything of his own choice. He just <laughs> it is a prophecy. Yes. <laughs> there's a prophecy and everybody and his mom he prays and like boom there's his mom as a white dove and she finds the golden bow and it's like wow you really worked hard for that one um but uh <laughs> i hate Aeneas. i'm sorry <laughs> so, so many people do so many people do you're in a long line of people like t.s Eliot and ezra pound it's a something i read in one of the secondary literature pieces by <laughs> Feral is that uh, it's been a great sport of scholars throughout time to take pot shots at the Aeneid and that it is. Um, but, just but I was just going to say, like, I think, I, yeah, I think you're I totally was... right because what gets him to the death day party is the fact that he has tracked mud into the in, in, into uh, Hogwarts. Filch catches him and is going to write him up for another detention. But at the moment that he's doing that, he hears Peeves and goes off to to, to get Peeves because Peeves is a bigger is a bigger issue than Harry, and so he's. Harry's all forgotten. But it turns out that Sir Nick 
has put Peeves up to this and saved Harry's butt. And so something I wanted to bring up, and maybe this is superficial, but I'm not sure, is that sort of what Nick is introducing Harry to, rather than sort of a top-down sort of mentor-mentee or teacher-student relation, is more of an adult-reciprocal relationship here. Mm. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's like, I did this nice thing for you, but it's not a nice thing for you. It's it's something I did for you because I, I could really use some help from you myself. Well, and But on the other hand, like, um, Harry... You know, it, I get the vibe, like, if, if he really is, you know, like, having kind of a, 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 a strong power, not powerful, but like a healthy sense of self and ego, like, I mean, isn't it kind of something that he does out of like, oh, man, I guess this, I owe yes, this guy yes. this thing. Yeah, no, it's a real I sense pit- of reciprocity. And I, and I, pit- but like, out of pity, you know, that's like, like, <laughs> I guess I'll go to this guy's party, you know, I don't know, like. I owe him. It's not like he's, it's not like we're really friends. Um, you know, it's so interesting too, cause he could learn so much there, right? Like he could learn about the nature of mortality from the ghost. He could ask, you know, what happens to you that you become a ghost? Where are my parents right. ghosts? Like uh, what did you experience on the other side? Like you could find out so much potentially. And yet he's thinking about it. I think in the terms you're describing, like, I, I said I'd do this, so I guess I gotta go. Like, uh, kinda, <laughs> it's like, like school uh, itself. Uh, no, it's 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 great, and and Hermione reminds him that he promised to go, and so it's sort of like he has to keep his word. He's mm-hmm. supposed to help. He's supposed to help Nick um, make it onto the headless hunt, you know, by putting in a good word with Sir Patrick, you know. Um, but Sir Patrick sees through it right away because Harry doesn't you know, actually try that hard. It's really. It's is, really just like so underwhelming. <laughs> is that is that what he I mean, I don't know if that's what he's supposed to learn, but like I think he yeah, he overlooks these people who are outsiders. I think not understand like um maybe that's cuz he is such an insider, but like people like uh, doesn't understand Filch's sensitivity or doesn't understand Nick's desire to be in the headless hunt or Colin Creevy or whatever. But couldn't he use his fame for good? Like, couldn't he use it to, uh, I, I thought about that when they were in like, um, Diagon Alley and they go to the Weasley's, um, uh, vault and there's like nothing in it. Like, couldn't you, I mean, what, if you are famous, what responsibility do you have, um, to, um, those around you who are overlooked by the very people who give you attention over them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With, um, with his detention with uh, Lockhart, it's like an example of how not to right. give back. Right? It's like sit there and have someone else write your thank you letters while you spout off about how great you are again. You know, so it's like we we see. Yeah, there is there is this like deep question about what does Harry do with his fame? Um, does he pretend it's not there? Does he uh, try to get away from it? Does he try to make the most of it like that seems to be the the reverse of these like negative um, versions of, of outsiders right so yeah when you're at the top like what do you do with that and well, then you maybe can't get away from it because even at the death day yeah. party you can't get away from it right so but, but his fame yeah. isn't his fame also isn't enough to get nearly headless nick into the part into the into the community like he a, a good word from harry like a yeah. nice recommendation from a teacher is sometimes not enough 
to get what you want, even out of even if it was out of the kindness of it wasn't, you know, a tit for tat reciprocity thing. His fame is is in is insufficient to achieve uh, the goal. I don't know. Maybe that's like the mini yeah. lesson. Well, what, what's interesting about that is that what something I think Wes and I think you brought up in our first book is that sort of the the process of 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 um, encanting a spell is both doing something new and rooting oneself in tradition at the same time through you know a wooden wand and that a spell is words with power that affect reality. But what we're seeing in this text are words that do not have the power to, to change reality. That in fact, regardless of some things, regardless of what you say, something simply cannot be changed. Yeah. Um, and perhaps even, and maybe this is going, no, this is the end of uh, chapter eight. We see that emphasized by the fact that Albus Dumbledore, the figure I've often said is identified with sort of the God, the father figure, of changing the petrified state of Miss Norris um, without access to a potion. Sort of like there's an idea, there's an interplay between that which civilization or society is capable of doing and altering, but there's also an underlying nature that simply cannot be altered. Like with Filch, if he's a squib, which means he doesn't have magic, sorry, Filch, nobody can change that. Um, Nick, if you're already dead and your head wasn't cut off, well, it doesn't matter who says what about you. You can't play headless croquet. And and no and no amount of money is gonna get Draco Malfoy better. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just gonna, no, 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 no That's really good. That's right. I'm laughing because it's right. That's good. No amount of money is gonna make him smarter than Hermione. Like none no. of it. Unless like not even the greatest tutors in the world. No. Um, or the greatest quick spells in the world are gonna is gonna make him like get better marks than her, right? Right. Oh no, so, so her talent is supreme. And and I just that makes that makes the use of those words to me all the more weak, um, hmm. because it's it's not born. It's not a it's not an act of power to tear someone down with a nasty word. What is an act of power is to is to wave your wand and say an incantation. I think that that's that's interesting that's powerful that's creative um it's um it requires focus and intelligence and but but to just you know to tear someone down like that's that's weak um i don't know right right well Wes, do you want to maybe give us some closing thoughts before we we skedaddle off this time until we go back to the dormitories before class for next time the the thing i i brought up earlier which i think ties in here about um harry being able to say voldemort's name uh and and harry of course hearing this voice that no one else seems to be able to hear um Kill, rip meat blood yeah uh pretty chilling right um that that seems to connect here uh with with the um the way that Draco Draco is trying to uh, tear people down with by saying mudbloods, which other people are afraid or disgusted by, right? Even even saying, um, much less taking that attitude towards them. Um, it does seem like uh, Harry has got to figure out a way to um, bridge or use uh, his his superior abilities, his um, uh, courage. Uh, his experience facing Voldemort um, 
and and surviving uh and and actually like get that across to people um in a way that that could even for someone like draco um sort of change their mind that that seems to be like again the the last or the ultimate um challenge or lesson that these books are sort of leading us towards uh, in lots of ways so i just want to like restate that i guess and keep watching for it interesting and perhaps what we'll also see as this text goes on is that the fame that he seems so quick to want to push aside when it turns negative perhaps he'll miss the the positive and the happy looks that people gave him though as unwarranted as potentially they were um and hmm, interesting to keep in mind is perhaps Perhaps the worst thing that can happen when one is famous is not that one loses one's fame, but that one's fame turns to infamy. And um, then the recognition that one once had, which was such a positive force in one's life, becomes, you know, essentially one of the most negative forces possible for a human to have to endure, which is negative public opinion of oneself. Um, So, well, all right, y'all. Well, I I feel like this is an excellent conversation. And I, I, I think I have many thoughts in my head now that I did not have before I came in here. So your spells, your incantations are really doing some work on me. So I would agree. I would agree. I'll say that. Every good job, everyone. I learned a lot. Also I think it's cool. I think it's cool. I so I I read the book like I couldn't put it down. The second one. (laughs) Um while while I was on my road trip. So now that we've had this conversation and the one that I had that we had about a week ago um when I was in South Bend. Um it makes me kind of, I think I'm just going to have to go back and just now that these ideas are, it, it's going to, as Wes said, it's going to be like a, a lens to keep reading something to keep looking for. So now I need to yeah. go back and reread it again. So. so mandrakes have been, mandrakes have been planted in all of our pots. That's right. That's right. Very good. Them to mature. Yeah. Okay. So for next time then, uh, how about nine and 10? Do we want to make it to the, club 11 um i think nine i think we should go nine through 11 because there's some things in nine that will relate very nicely to things in 11 okay sure okay all right well then that sounds excellent well y'all let's make sure that the horror doesn't catch us and back to the dorms then (laughs) it was a pleasure as usual sounds good yeah take it easy fellas (laughs) all right Talk to you soon. Bye.